This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. The scripture for this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, and can be found on page 983 in your Black Pew Bible. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Good morning. Hey, happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you so much for this place, uh, these people. Thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Uh, You you made everything, which is crazy. Like you spoke and galaxies and the universe just popped into existence. Um, and, And you still are able to do that and look down and see us and know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. Um, so, so, Lord, I, I pray, will you open our eyes? Will you open our hearts? We're all coming from so many different places this week, and we're all carrying so many different things with us. Um, so, 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 Lord, uh, we need you. We need your spirit to come and give us peace. Uh, where there's anxiety, we need hope. Where there's weakness, we need your strength. Uh, and you're the one who can give it to us. Uh, so, Lord, we are here not, um, not because we have anything to offer. We're, we're, we're here because we know we need you. Uh, so, Lord, will you open our eyes? Will you open our hearts? And will you do what this passage talks about um, and reconcile all things back to yourself? I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Once upon a time, I tried to be a runner. (laughs) And I tried really hard. And I got okay at it. Uh, I realized that I was going to give up, like, really quickly on my own because I do not like to run. It's awful. But I saw my friends who were running, and they seemed like they were having a great time. They were doing races, and they were high-fiving each other and just, like, zooming around. So I downloaded the Nike Run Club app, and I was like, all right, I'll get a virtual coach, and I'll, you know, see, see, see what I can do. Uh, so I, I, go on, I go on a run, and I'm, you know, following this program. And at the end of every single run, you know, you have this little voice in your ear who's, you know, being like, all right, you know, you're, you're doing great. Keep on going. You know, you should, you should be able to breathe right now. And I was like, well, that's not me. I cannot breathe right now. Uh, um, 
But at the end of every single run, he was like, hey, way to get out there today. Super encouraging, super positive. He's like, you ended this run a better person than when you began. And I was like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> like, may, yeah, cool. It's good that I got out. It's good that I uh, tried to get a little bit more in shape. But like, I know I'm definitely not as patient as I was 45 minutes ago. I'm not as kind as I was 45 minutes ago. I'm sweaty. I'm out of breath. Uh, and I was like, this is really weird. Like, I'm, I'm just trying to run. And then I have this voice inside of my head telling me that I am on the way to becoming a better person because I went out on this run. Have you guys noticed that dynamic? Like, it's, it's really out there in the world. Like a run can't just be a run. You're becoming a better person. Um, We spend $13.2 billion every single year on self-help strategies, classes, seminars. Tony Robbins makes a billion dollars a year. I learned, I found this out over the weekend just for helping people to grow and get better. Now, on the one hand, like I get that, like we to be human is to want to grow. It's to realize, hey, there's something more that I can mature. I can get better. That's a good impulse. But I, I wonder, like, do you feel worn out every once in a while by all of the ways that we just like aren't measuring up? And we can see that really clearly in the news, in our social media feeds, there's always a different strategy or a different process or a different class or a different thing that if we do this, then we're going to be able to somehow close the gap that we all feel in our lives. But I wonder, like, have you tried that? And at the end of it still just felt like, man, I'm not a better person right now. There is still a gap. There is still something missing. Is there anything at the end of this treadmill that can actually make a difference in my life? Now, the Bible uh, sees that gap. It recognizes that there is some sort of absence in our lives that we're all constantly trying to fill. In the Bible, our passage today is going to point to the fact that, hey, that gap does not come from a lack of understanding on your part. It does not just come from a lack of emotional intelligence. It's because we are fundamentally alienated from God. And we live in a world that has been severed and fractured in its relationship to the one who made everything and the one who upholds everything. So if you are new here, uh, we've been going through the book of Colossians, uh, a few verses at a time. It's a book by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. In the last couple weeks, we just got done uh, hearing about these really big ideas and concepts in verses 15 through 20, like Jesus made everything. He spoke the world into existence. He's holding absolutely everything together. He's reconciling the world back to himself. They're really big concepts, making statements about really big realities in our lives. And and I wonder, I think sometimes when we are talking about big kind of cosmic abstract ideas like that, we can wonder really naturally, where do we fit in? I mean, I know I realize that God is really big and he is really out there kind of holding everything together, kind of uh, gently guiding everything to make sure that everything is okay. But does he actually see me? 
because I'm a lot smaller than the Milky Way, and I'm a lot smaller than the president or thrones or powers or authorities and all these other things that Colossians has been talking about. Like, does God actually see little me in this little old unimportant place, um, or does he not? This passage right here corrects the fear that God doesn't see us. Because in Christ, there is no such thing as a little unimportant person or a little unimportant out of the way place. He is both the one who makes everything, sustains everything, is ruling over everything, and he actually sees us. He knows us right here, right now. One of the unique things about Christianity is it tells us that God is both of those things. He's both really big. He's huge. He is impossible to like get your mind around or get your arms around. And he stoops down and he comes to us and meets us in our weakness and not just in our weakness, also in our rebellion, in our pushing back against him in our saying, no, thanks. We, we, we don't want that. So Colossians 1 21 through 23, this passage that we just heard read, shows us how God solves our deepest problem of alienation. Because, he, because that is our deepest problem. We are alienated from God. And we need someone to bring us back. So there's a three-part movement in these three verses that talks about who we were, the reality of the world that we live in. Then it turns to show us what Jesus has done about it and then encourages us in how we should live now. Who we were, what Jesus has done, and how we should live now. Let's look at each of these in turn, starting with verse 21. Look down in your Bibles, and I'll just uh, read it again. Colossians 1, verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, do evil deeds. So notice that. It starts with a and you. We are zooming in all the way from like galaxies and the cosmos and these huge statements. Like verse 15 through 20 is full of third person pronouns. He is by him, through him, for him. Everything has been about Jesus, his glory, his power, the way that Jesus uses his glory and his power, not for his own sake and benefit, uh, but for our sake to bring about reconciliation to all things. And then all of a sudden it zooms into and you. Little Colisee or Lenexa or Andrew or you. And I hear something that, that I thought was, was interesting. It's interesting that these verses talk about reconciliation. Like, uh, why do all things need to be reconciled? And on one hand, you get it, right? You, you, you look out, you know, hey, something's wrong. Something's, something's not right out there. Something has gone wrong, and we need something or someone to fix it. But it's interesting that the verse that is used in verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross, is a relational word, right? 
because you could have just as easily said, hey, everything was broken, and so Jesus is fixing all things in him. Or all things are dark, so Jesus is illuminating the world and bringing light. Or all things were unhealthy, so Jesus is healing or bringing health. All those things are, are true. Jesus is doing those things. But the primary way that the Bible, that Paul here is talking about what's gone wrong is relational. There is a fracture, not just like in the system or the machine out there. There is a fracture in relationship between God and humanity. For reconciliation to happen, there has to be a break or fracture in a relationship. So do you you see what this means? The primary problem in the world, the primary thing that has gone wrong is our relationship with the God who made everything is broken. It's, it's out of whack. It's fractured. It's not right. Something has gone wrong, and we see that something is in verse 21. It's you and me who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You could translate that word alienation as strangers or estranged. It's this picture or idea of relational cutoff and brokenness. And the fault is not on God's end of the relationship. Why are we cut off? Why are we alienated? Well, it's because our minds are hostile, and our deeds are evil. We, we've, we've estranged ourselves from God because our minds and our hearts resist or even hate the idea of God and his claim on our lives and our wills, our actions are set against doing what he wants us to do. And, and you might hear that and you, and you might be like, man, that, that seems a little bit extreme. Like, I get this stuff is out of whack, um, but, but like active hostility, maybe, like maybe you're in this room and you're not a Christian, and you're like, I don't feel hostile towards God. I'm just like not convinced that he's out there. I'm, not, I'm just not really sure who he is, and I need to figure uh, some, a, few, a few more things out. Um, let, let me just say a couple things about what, what does it mean to be alienated? Uh, be, be, because spiritual alienation does not necessarily manifest itself emotionally, and alienation can take different forms. What do I mean by that? Let me, let me, let me talk about uh, both of those things. First, when we talk um, about alienation or hostility, we kind of just assume that we're talking about, like, oh, I feel angry, or I feel resentment, or I feel bitter and opposed to God. Maybe you do. Uh, there, there are plenty of people throughout history who have felt that way. I'm sure that many of us in this room have felt that way uh, before. But when we're talking about spiritual estrangement, spiritual brokenness, it's not always accompanied by feelings of anger. It can manifest itself just as easily in indifference or trying to do it your own way. Think about it. We just got done uh, talking about last, in the last couple of weeks how Jesus made everything, holds everything together right now. What does that mean? That means when Jesus said, hey, stars, you should shine light. What'd they do? They, they shone light. 
When Jesus said, hey, galaxies, you should go here. Constellations, you should arrange yourself in this way. They did it. They listened to what he said and they went exactly where he asked them to. When he told seeds to sprout or rain to fall, like it did it. Everything in creation except for humans listen to and obey what God says. They do what he asks when he speaks. So our alienation, our cut-offness from God isn't necessarily evidenced by the fact that we hate him all the time and we feel really angry at him. It's evidenced in the fact that we're just indifferent, that we don't really know if it's worth listening to what he has to say. And maybe we could figure out a better way of doing it. Like that's what it means to be hostile in mind towards God. It means, yeah, I'm just gonna go ahead and I'm just going to do it my own way. Which, which is, um, it just doesn't work. Because if, if Jesus is who this book says he is, if he is the source of life, if we were made from him and for him and a harmonious life is living in alignment with him, that means if we try to just like do things our own way, like we're on the road to some kind of brokenness and eventually death. Like we feel and experience the consequences of that all over the place in our lives. I mean, like some of you have really experienced the consequences of living in a world that is broken and alienated from God. Because it doesn't just end in estrangement from God, like it trickles down and breaks our relationships and uh, creates pain in our lives and the lives of people around us. Alienation does not necessarily have to mean deep anger. It can just as much look like, meh, I'm just gonna try it my own way. And as we set off on that path, we are on the road to death and darkness. So that's one thing uh, to consider when we think about what does it mean to be spiritually alienated. Um, this, the second thing is that the way that we live out that reality in our lives, the fact that we are alienated from God, um, can look really, really, really different. Um, uh, Pastor Tim Keller uh, passed away a uh, few, few days ago, just over a week ago. He was a pastor in New York City, wrote a lot of books, and uh, was super influential uh, in my life, and I know probably in a lot of your guys' lives also. Uh, I remember when I read his book, The Prodigal God, I don't know, uh, 10, 10 years ago, something like that. Uh, and, and in that book, he retells the story of the prodigal son, which is a parable from Jesus in Luke chapter 15. And I think it's really helpful the way that he talks about it um, in the way that it illustrates how we resist God in different ways. Let me, let me just retell the story really quickly if you are not familiar with it. A man has two sons an older uh, brother and a younger brother. The younger brother comes to him and says, hey, dad, I, I want my share of the inheritance. Can you just give me everything right now so I can go off and do my own thing? Which is a humiliating request. And it's a, and it's a really devastating request because he lives in a culture that uh, like his resources aren't necessarily in cash. He's not writing him a check. He has a lot of land. He has a lot of livestock. So to give an inheritance, he has to go sell land. He has to go sell livestock, which means that he's weak 
weakening the rest of the family. He's probably weakening the community around him. And he's giving into a son's request that is essentially saying, hey, like, I, I wish you were dead right now because I care more about what I can get from you than actually living in relationship with you. So the, the father does it, gives the younger son his share of the inheritance. He goes, blows all of the money, loses everything, and eventually finds himself lying in a pigsty and saying, well, man, I think I would probably be better off if I just went back to my dad's house and tried to be a servant there. Like, I've done too much, I can't be a son, but I'll just go back, see if he will take me on as a hired hand. The father sees him coming from a long ways off, humiliates himself by running to him, greeting him, won't let him apologize, brings him back into the house, gives him um, the finest food that he has, throws him a massive party and welcomes him back into the family. It's this beautiful picture of grace. And that's the part that we focus on a lot. Um, This son who had alienated himself by overt, really blatant rebellion. But then the story doesn't end there because there's an older brother also who did stay in the father's house and who did listen to what his dad had to say and who did obey and tried to take care of the things that were going on. And he is upset that the dad is welcoming in his younger brother. Like on the one hand, you get it, right? Because the younger brother weakened his inheritance, but he will not come into the house to celebrate the fact that his brother is back, which is humiliating to the father. In a really patriarchal society, if you disrespect your dad like that, like it, it is a deep, deep offense. What does the dad do? He goes out and he says, hey, son, like all that I have is yours. And the older brother says, well, man, you haven't given me a thing. Like I've worked all my life for you and you haven't even given me like a goat to celebrate with my friends. So what's the point? What's the point of all of this? The older brother is just as cut off and alienated from the dad as the younger brother because he doesn't care about the dad either. He's just concerned about the stuff that he can get from his dad also. He's concerned about insisting on his own rights, his own way, and he's just as willing to humiliate his dad in front of everyone else as the younger brother is. Alienation can look like outright rebellion, or it can look like quiet conformity without love or without heart. There's a Flannery O'Connor novel where she describes one of the characters as um, saying that he was convinced that the way for him to avoid having to deal with Jesus was to obey all the rules that Jesus laid out. Because if you can just like fly under the radar, then you don't actually have to deal with anything that God actually has to say. Both of them are forms of alienation. It can look like running away or it can look like conformity. What is the point of the parable? It's not the failure of the sons. It is the love of the father who was humiliated over and over and over again. Like, he did not do anything to harm the relationship. He consistently gave. He consistently welcomed back. He consistently showed love. And then, when it came time to repair the relationship, he didn't say to the younger son, well, man, you caused a really big mess, so you, have, you do have to earn your way back. Um, you do have to work really hard to make sure that you belong in my house. He doesn't do any of that. He absorbs the cost of social humiliation and says, yeah, come on back in. You don't have to repay a thing. 
He does not yell at the older brother for humiliating him and embarrassing him in front of all of his friends in the community. Instead, he goes out to him. He pleads with him. He says, hey, everything that I have is yours. The father absorbs the relational tab that his sons ran up and gives them everything out of love. And Jesus is saying, hey, this is a picture of how God is dealing with you, alienated son or daughter. You who have run away or you who have stayed close without love. Who's going to fix that? God, through his own blood on a cross. And that's the point that Paul makes in verse 22 also. We were alienated from God. We are responsible for harm against creation, harm against God, harm against others. And yet, verse 22 points us to what Jesus has done to heal that breach. Look at this verse with me. So you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present to you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Look at, the, look at the flow of that sentence. This is a really classic New Testament move. This is who you once were. And there's no denying it. You were alienated. Your mind was dark and you did some pretty bad things. But now God has brought you back near. Now look at not at what used to be, but look at what is in Jesus Christ. In Christ, alienation, hostility, brokenness no longer define you. They, they, they don't define you. Instead, we, the ones who were hostile, running away, indifferent, are reconciled to this God. How does that happen? It does not happen by you working really hard to atone for what you've done. It does not happen by you saying, oh, man, yep, I, I got it wrong, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it right this time. Um, the, the, the reconciliation happens because God takes initiative to bring us back to him. Like we're the ones who were hostile. We were the ones who humiliated him. We were the ones who treated him like he's not actually good or he's not actually glorious or he's not actually powerful. Like we, we, we just like, eh, maybe, but we're just going to try to figure it out on our own. Like that, that is an offense against God. We feel slights against ourselves all the time. Imagine how the God who made everything, like just, just say, no, I think I, I you know, I, I graduated from college. I, I think I can, I think I can get this. Like that's what we do to God. And yet he's the one who absorbs all of that cost. He's the one who reconciles us to himself in the broken and bloody body of Jesus Christ upon the cross at Calvary. Justice would have demanded that we pay our own way. Justice would have demanded that we try to figure out a way to make things up with God. If we've alienated ourselves and the whole world to God through sin, that means that we can't, we, like, we, we don't have it within us to make things right. We need him to do it. So something needs to happen to bring about our reconciliation. Our actions only result in death. Our actions, actions only result in further estrangement, further alienation. But 
Jesus Christ actually has the authority to bring about reconciliation. How does he do that? He takes on a body like us. The one who made everything becomes small. He becomes human. And he doesn't walk into the world alienated or estranged uh, from God. He walks into the world and lives the way that every human was supposed to live. Everywhere he goes, he's pointing to the goodness of God, the glory of God. He's walking in perfect harmony with God. He's bringing healing. He's bringing light and he's bringing life to the world. And then he goes and he takes our place on a cross. The one who deserved perfect glory goes and takes our punishment. He takes our estrangement. He takes our humiliation and gives us a welcome. He gives us a place in his family. And do you see what that does? That means that in Christ, we are, what does the text say? Holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. What's wild is that if you are in Jesus, if you see him, like if you run to him, those words define you more than anything else. More than, like, more than any other thing that you've done in your life. More than your worst mistake. More than the worst thing that has happened to you. More than the worst intentional thing that you have done against another person. If you are in Jesus, you are holy and you are blameless, and you are above reproach, which is wild, because I feel, like, very reproachable. Like, I know a lot of things that I, like, I, I know what I've done. Um, like, I, I know all the ways that I fell short this morning by getting annoyed and short and just, like, not uh, living like the God who made everything is watching over me. And yet, these verses are not, hey, here's how you become holy. Here's how you become above reproach. Here's a five-step program, the things that you need to do. It's an announcement. God, through Jesus Christ, has already reconciled the world back to himself. God, through Jesus Christ, has reconciled you back to himself. You do not belong to the former way of alienation and darkness and sin and brokenness. You belong to Jesus. And what Jesus has to say about you is more real than anything else in your life. And you might be wondering, like, how, how does that make sense? Because the world for sure does not seem like it's reconciled back to God. It does not seem like uh, we are experiencing the benefits of living in right relationship to him. Like things fall apart. Relationships fall apart. Um, we still feel the, like the brokenness and the gap inside of all of us. So like, how do you make sense of the fact that Jesus has reconciled, um, all the work is done, this is who we are, and like, it really does not line up with our experience? Here's, here's I think, a helpful way of thinking about it. Um, during the Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, declared the end of slavery and freedom to all slaves in January 1863. Now, legally, 
by law, by proclamation and declaration of the President of the United States, slavery was over. Like, it did, not have, uh, it did not have any legitimate existence, and every single person who was enslaved was legally free. But we all know, like, there was still a war that was going on. There were still people who refused to abide by the proclamation. And so it took until June 19th, 1865, when the war was over and news had spread all the way to the furthest reaches of the country, um, that freedom was actually there. So there is this gap between what's real, what is legally true, and when everyone will experience it. And here's the deal. We are living in that gap right now. The the war has been won. Freedom has been proclaimed. This is who you are in Jesus. And yet, we still live in a world that is resisting the rule of Christ. And even there's something inside of our own hearts that still pushes back and chafes against the rule and goodness of Jesus in our lives. And so we're right now waiting to experience finally the full benefits of this gospel freedom that is already ours in Jesus. We're waiting for God to finally fully bring his kingdom so we can experience the full glory and the full effects of reconciliation. So if that's true, if we were alienated, if Jesus absorbed the cost of all of that, gave us his life, placed us in his family without us doing a thing, how do we live now? Verse 23 points in that direction. Look down in your Bibles with me at it. So Jesus has presented us holy, blameless, above reproach before him and his family and his presence, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a messenger. So how do you live right now? There is always going to be this pull, this tug, this gap that is convincing you that you have to do something more. It's that thing that the younger brother and the prodigal son had that's like, oh man, I need to earn my way back. I need to prove myself. I need to justify my place here. You don't see any of that in this verse though. You don't see, hey, this is what God has done. So now that God has done that, you really, really need to work really hard to read your Bible. You need to work really, really hard to make sure that you are uh, being generous, to make sure that you're being kind to all your people. You should do those things. Those are great things to do. But what do you do? You hold on to the reality of the gospel in your life. How do you continue on? You, you say, come what may, whatever I might experience, who am I? I'm a beloved son or daughter of God. I I am holy. I am blameless. I am above reproach. Not, not because I made myself that way, but because Jesus Christ has come and he has placed me into his family. So you hold on. You hold on. Like, I wonder how many of us feel tired or feel shaky or feel like we need to figure out something else in our lives. 
Like the answer for you is to hold on all the more tightly to the good news of the gospel. It is to hold on to your justification that Jesus has made us his, that we belong to him, that the love of the father compelled him to pay all of the costs on our behalf. And now we just get to live and exist in Christ at the table as a son or as a daughter. Um, so often, we, we're, we're like, we just look at ourselves all the time, right? How am I doing? Gosh, how did that, like, I, I, I just sounded like an idiot in that conversation. Like, how, how, did I, how did I come across? Like, what impact did I make on that person? Did I do something wrong there? Um, we're, we're always looking inside of ourselves. We're always trying to figure out, hey, how am I doing? Like, what are the metrics inside of, inside of my life? That's fine. Like, you can do that. That's not gonna lead anywhere. That's not gonna actually lead to lasting, deep change inside of you. Look outside of yourself. Look at Jesus. That's what we always have to do. Look to the one who came for you. Look to the one who took your death upon himself. Look to the one who said, no, my word is more powerful. My statements are more true. And if he has said that you belong, if he has said you're beloved, then that's what you are, more than anything else. So we live now not trying to earn our place, not trying to justify ourselves to God or to each other. We live in the welcome and the embrace of God and wait for him to come back again and make all things new. So what's the difference? Well, it's love. Like love compels us to hold on to him. Love compels us to look outside of ourselves. Love builds a strong foundation on which we can stand, something that is not shaky, something that will not fall. So are you looking for a strong, steady, stable life? Look to Jesus. He's already done all the work and he is inviting you into his family and he will one day come to make all things new. So what do we do right now? Um, I mean, right now, as we, as we, as we shut down the service. Um, hey, there, there are people inside of this room right now like who are wondering where God is in your life. You are experiencing things that you don't know how to make sense of. You can't figure out or understand why God lets you get to where you are. Um, and you are really trying to hold on. Um, what, what, what I would say to you, you right now is, man, look to the cross, like look to the Father. We still do live in a world that is broken and out of control. And some of you are experiencing the effects of that really deeply in your lives right now. Look to Jesus, hold on to him with everything that you have. And there are people in this room who would love to pray for you. Like, don't do that by yourself. Don't try to just uh, white knuckle it uh, with your own power. We're gonna have uh, prayer ministers underneath this window over here to my left, your right, who would love to pray with you, um, who would love to hear a little bit about what's going on in your life and then ask God to bring hope and healing and comfort uh, to you. Uh, for, for the rest of us, we can actually enact what it looks like to hold on to Jesus by coming to the communion table. Because when we come to the table, um, it is a physical journey to the source of life. We're, we're saying, hey, um, we need you, Lord. 
We need your body. We need your blood. We need your grace in our lives because we, like, we don't have it. I don't have it. I need all the grace that you have to give, give me, and I believe that you have all the grace that I need. And so we come to this table, and we are reminded by brothers and sisters that the body of Jesus was broken for me. His blood was poured out, and his blood speaks a better word than anything that we have done or experienced in life. So we come for hope, we come for healing, we come for courage, we come for sustenance, and we come believing that Jesus has everything that we need and he delights to meet us here. So if you are a Christian, let's end this time by coming to the table. Um, The way that we practice communion here at Redeemer is we will have a station up in the balcony and then three stations down here on the floor. Uh, in the balcony and the two on the floor in front of me. It's going to be bread, wine, and juice. You just need to come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in either the wine or the juice. The juice is in the glass. The wine is in the stoneware. Um, we also have a gluten-free single-serve uh, option right over here to my left, your right. Um, so if you're a Christian, come to the table. Communion with the Lord. He's invited you into his family, to his table. Uh, if you're not a Christian, man, we ju- I just invite you, uh, sit in your seat, Uh, pray, ask God to reveal himself to you and search like maybe, hey, is what you're doing working? And maybe you can for the first time take hold of the grace that God through Jesus is offering to you. Um, So I'm gonna pray. The band can come back up uh, and then we will finish by praying with and for each other and coming to the Lord's table. Will you pray with me? Uh, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have everything that we need. Uh, Lord, in places where we... um, are broken and don't have what it takes. God, like, will you meet us? If we need to go on by holding on to the faith that we received, if we need to see the gospel, the good news that you've reconciled us back to yourself, like, God, will you, will you do that? Um, will you give us faith to hold on? Like, will you give us faith to have faith? Uh, we need even that from you. So God, thanks you for meeting everything that we need. Lord, will you, uh, will you be with us and help us? pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.